This week at Hope Point. Only when you are certain that all will be rewarded in heaven are you able to endure when all is lost on earth. The reason that we are a fairly soft generation is our lack of hope in Christ's return. The more that you believe there's no great reward to come, the more that you will fill your life with rewards now, because you believe this is it. The more that you believe that Christ will reward every sacrifice made in His name, the more you will long to sacrifice. A lack of sacrifice reveals a lack of faith. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. So um, I told you last week, and it's true, that we're going to put a pause on Revelation for a few weeks, get us through the holidays. The end of chapter 14 was a good place to break. Um, you need it as a listener. I need it as a teacher. And so, uh, but it's interesting, the more I thought about what the Lord would have me say today, I'm still not very far away from the theme that we have looked at for the past year, and that is the return of of Jesus Christ. I was reminded that again this week as I was looking at just the history of Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts in 1719. He was a bit of a rebel in his day, regarded by some as a heretic simply because he wanted to change up music in church. But his dad said, if you think the music in church is boring, son, then write better stuff. So he wrote 750 new hymns, the most prolific hymn writer of his day. And the one he's most well known for is Joy to the World. And what's interesting, he didn't write it as a Christmas piece. He wrote it when he was going through the book of Psalms and came to Psalm 89, which led him to write Joy to the World. I'll read Psalm 89 and then make some comments about his hymn. Or Psalm 98. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples um, with equity. Isaac Watts read Psalm 98 correctly. It's not talking about the birth of Christ. It's talking about his return when he'll make all things right by his power. And that's what led him to write joy to the world. It's not a Christmas hymn. It's a hymn of the celebration of the second advent of Jesus Christ. You'll see that as we go through some of his We're going to sing it at the end of the service today. I want you to see it in advance. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Well, we know that was not written about the birth of Christ because there was no room for Jesus in the end, nor was there any room for Jesus among his own people. John 1, he came to that which was on his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says he was despised, not welcomed, not received, and rejected by men. We held him in low esteem and did not receive him. 
The receiving spoken of in joy to the world of the king will only take place in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every now knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth when Christ returns. Isaac Watts' second stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Well, if you have been alive just a few, uh, let me see, seconds, then you know this earth hurts, and it's full of sorrow. The curse is still quite active. All you got to do this afternoon is walk through the woods, and you're going to get poked by a thorn. They're still here. So Jesus didn't take away any of that at his first coming. The curse will only be removed at his second coming, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. No longer will there be any curse, not at his first advent, but at his second And then the third verse of joy to the world, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Well, it's pretty evident to us now we live in a world that hates truth, that rejects the grace of Jesus Christ, and the world does not relish in the glory of the righteousness of God. But 2 Peter says, the world will one day do that. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness of God dwells. So you may be asking right now, how in the world did that become the number one Christmas carol? Well, it happened because of a man named Lowell Mason who found the work of Isaac Watts in a book of poetry 100 years after his death. So if you're thinking, my life has has no meaning, wait 100 years. Lowell Mason found those beautiful words and put them to to the melody that we sing today. And he just happened to publish his work of, of songs at Christmas and people have always associated from that point on joy to the world with a, a Christmas carol. So some of you might also ask, well, pastor, do you, do you think it's okay for us to keep singing joy to the world at Christmas? Well, my answer is a thousand times yes, as long as we understand what the New Testament teaches There is joy in his coming as a baby only if he returns as a king. There is no joy to the world just because of Christmas. The second advent is what gives the first advent any meaning at all. If our talk over the past 12 months of the the return of Christ has not thrilled you, It's because your life is soft. You're surrounded by so much comfort and shielded from significant pain. You're unable to see and feel the sorrow of a weary world. If you know that world out there, 
you'll be longing for the return of Christ for them. We need a man who will come save us from our sin, Christmas. We need a king who will take us to our home, the second coming. If you think there's too much emphasis on the second coming of Christ simply because I've been preaching through the book of Revelation for 13 months, then what you have told me is that you're just unfamiliar with the New Testament in general. Because out of the 27 books of the New Testament, and they're not very big books at all, most of them are not, out of the 27 books of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the return of Christ. That means if you read from Matthew to Revelation, once every 25 verses, you come across a word about the return of Jesus. It is what fueled the stamina and the strategy of the early church. Archbishop Trent says the early church's view of the return of Christ was like this. It's possible any day. It's impossible no day. He's coming back. And that was the hope of the early church. Now what I want to do in our remaining time is I want to look at some of the verses starting in the Gospels way before Revelation so you'll believe me of how it inundates the hope of everybody, including what Jesus had to tell his disciples. On four occasions, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to die. He got a little bit more specific with each telling. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this is the first time in verse chapter 16 of Matthew is the first time he told him, I'm dying. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that, that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. This is an unbelievable statement. It's almost as if you had a friend that's going on a mission trip and they're telling you before they board the plane, I'm going to die on this trip. That's how traumatic it was for the disciples to hear that. Now, in the context of this, it's even more traumatic because right before this passage, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, I got that one. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Then, in this verse, Jesus says, your Messiah is about to die. And then Peter says, no, terrible plan. And Jesus says, not only am I going to die, you're going to suffer as well, Peter. And then he comforts him with talk of the second coming. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus to Peter, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will roar at each person according to what they have done. Jesus comforted suffering people by the second coming. In the book of John, it's a little more subtle. He doesn't quite say exactly like what he said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he said enough to know he was, what they were talking. He was talking about dying. On the last night of his life, he even said, my suffering will occur through one of you men who will betray me and sell me out. They were devastated. How did Jesus comfort devastated people? Second coming. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back 
and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So that's the Gospels, and there's plenty more there. When Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, he was encouraging a suffering group that when they went out, they were going to encounter a group of people that hated the gospel. Prepare him for that. So this is what he said to him. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. And then he told, he described the dark lifestyles of these enemies that you're going to go preach to. But instead of just leaving it dark, he said, but... Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior, await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. So how did Paul comfort them to be courageous when they were going to be rejected second coming? Then it happened again in Thessalonica. The church was all messed up because in the early church, everybody thought that Jesus' return was going to be pretty soon after his departure. So they thought that one day they're just going to walk out of their shop, out of their house, out of the field. Boom. There he is. Well, in Thessalonica, it was tough to be a Christian. People were being imprisoned. They were dying They were burying believers and Jesus still hadn't returned and the church was getting sad that their dead believers were going to miss the party. Now you say, how in the world? That's just where they were. It's new to them. You're pros. They weren't. It was new. They died. They're going to miss his return. That's what they were thinking. So he writes 1 Thessalonians 4 to clear that up. This is how it starts. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So he's telling them, you guys are acting like there's no hope here. And we've looked at this before that when Jesus or any apostle uses, compares sleep and death, he's not saying these people are unconscious. The reason that the the Bible speaks about death in terms of sleep, is that you would know that it's no more difficult for God to cause someone to live again after they die. It's no harder for him to do that than it is for you to wake a child that is sleeping and taking a nap. Just as easy for God. You wake somebody up from a nap, God wakes somebody up from death. That's why he talks about sleep as death. It's not hard for him. Cause somebody to live again. So how do you know that? Hey, know that because Jesus told us. You remember when he was going to go see his friend Lazarus? Jesus, somebody had texted him and said, "Lazarus is sick and he's going to die." And Jesus knew he was going to die, and he did die. Then Jesus told his disciples, "We need to go to the village where Lazarus is." And the disciples said, "We can't do that. It's dangerous. Everybody's looking for you nowadays." This is how Jesus told them, we're going. John 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. That's how 
easy it is for Jesus to wake a man or to resuscitate a man who's been in a tomb for four days. So that's why Paul told the believers in Thessalonica, don't grieve. Those that you love have already been awakened by God and they're already with Jesus. And at his second coming, they're coming with him. That's the whole purpose of 1 Thessalonians 4. It ain't a rapture passage. It's been massacred. It's a return passage to comfort people who've thought that those who've died are going to miss the party of his return. They're already at the party. We're the ones who are late. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, have to redefine sleep because we don't believe that when Jesus bursts the eastern sky, that he's going to have 10 million believers by him sleeping. 10 million believers who have died, 100 million, billion, 100 billion, I don't know, very much alive with Jesus coming back. Now, we hadn't made it yet. He's coming for us. So the whole passage is about second coming. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, like right now, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. They got to see him first. For the Lord, this is how it works for us. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they're already with Jesus. Those who've fallen asleep, their souls are extraordinarily happy with him in some sort of temporary dwelling. And when Jesus parts the eastern sky, the first thing that's going to happen is their bodies are going to join their souls in the sky with Jesus. That's the first thing at the second coming. Then it's our turn. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up and that is where we get the word raptured. That's right. We will be raptured at the second coming. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As Paul said, how is the church supposed to be encouraging each other? By talking about the second coming. You cannot talk about it too much. And then when Paul wrote the this message to the Corinthians is a lot more in detail, but it's the same message at 1 Corinthians 4 when he told them in chapter 15, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's going up together. As we go up, we're going to be changed. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, which is faster than a blink at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, just like we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4. Their bodies join their souls, and we will be changed. And this is what we're waiting for. When the perishable, this body that can die, will be clothed with a body that can't die, and the mortal with immortality, live forever body, then the saying that is written will come true. Then, this is the first time we can ever say that, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And I know that you've been frustrated at the graveside 
of many funerals where somebody read that and you're sitting there saying, hey, this is stinging. And they read this verse. Because it's really a second coming verse. It's going to stop stinging when we meet each other in the air and the Lord changes our body. Let me say it this way. Christ's first coming brought about the death of guilt. Yay. Christ's second coming will bring about the death of death. That's what Paul was trying to say in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So, that raises a question now of what does all of this mean? Because we could talk about this. We have talked about it a bunch. What does the second coming really mean for us now? I think it means four things. It should produce four things in our life. I'll give you the four first, and then we'll go back and look at them. It should produce a faithful endurance, a joyful anticipation. These are all things produced by the second coming. Increasing purity, confident urgency. So faithful endurance. It's going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If there was a man that was probably as, maybe as frightened as me or more frightened than me about pastoring a church and proclaiming the word of God, knowing that culture is not going to like it, it was the guy who pastored the church, a disciple of Paul named Timothy. And this is how Paul comforted Timothy with the second coming. In the presence of God, he's writing to a pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and living of the dead and in view of his appearing, his second coming, I give you this charge, Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season when they want to listen and not listen. Rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with good teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Just people making up stuff. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Why should you stay faithful as a communicator, as a witness, as a preacher? Because we are one day closer to the return of Christ, which, we, which means we have one less day to get this message around the world. So therefore, in light of the fact that the world's getting harder to preach at, should mean we should with more zeal preach the word. The hope of the second coming is what fueled the witness of the early church. Number two, it, it should produce a joyful anticipation. Christ's return should cause us to have a joyful anticipation. There were a group of pastors in the Roman Empire that were mentored by a guy named Peter, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. They were suffering, getting killed, thought about quitting, Jesus, or Peter was thinking, how could I encourage these men to stay at it when you're going to lose everything? First Peter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, and when the chief shepherd appears, second coming, 
you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You say, what, what, what's that crown? I have no idea. I just want it. I just want to stand before Jesus and to be able to tell him, I did not live for myself. But I lived to disciple people, to care more for how others were doing than my sleep, what I'm making. I want to be concerned about helping them find Christ and find their gifts. And I see people today serving in HP Kids. That's what they're doing. More concerned about others. I see people in the inner city of four at-risk neighborhoods that were down there this week celebrating Christmas with their children. They're going to receive the crown of glory because they're shepherding people into the kingdom of God far more concerned about the sheep than self. And that's who gets the crown of glory. Those who did not live for self. Those who lived for the sheep. People often ask, well, doesn't this talk of the return of Christ, it just makes us lazy and ineffective? That's the normal argument, to always be looking for his coming. It's just the opposite, to be honest with you. Only when you are certain that all will be rewarded in heaven are you able to endure when all is lost on earth. The reason that we are a fairly soft generation is our lack of hope in Christ's return. The more that you believe there's no great reward to come, the more that you will fill your life with rewards now. Because you believe this is it. The more that you believe that Christ will reward every sacrifice made in his name, the more you will long to sacrifice. A lack of sacrifice reveals a lack of faith. One second in heaven, and we will all be ashamed that we ever complained at all. The reward is that the reward will be that great. The third thing we said the return of Christ would do, it should increase our purity. First John 3, 2, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You see the logic of the verse? When we see Christ, oh, we're going to be instantly transformed into his purity. And because we understand that that's everything, he's infinitely pure, well, that makes us want to get ready now for that meeting then. I don't know how many of you have ever needed to hire a service to clean your house. Like, when we, like sometimes when, it hadn't happened much, but a couple times when Lisa and I we ran out of time, have a party. We had to hire service to come over and clean the house. And so what's funny about that is when we do, then Lisa starts really cleaning the house. Because she doesn't want to be embarrassed when the people who are going to clean the house come to clean the house. She knows that's what they value. That's what they do. So she wants them to see a clean house when they come to clean house. That's what 1 John 3 is all about. If you love his holiness, you want to be holy. 
If you know you're going to see infinite holiness one day, you don't want to be wearing a bunch of dirty rags when you first see him. Fourth thing that return of Christ should do for us is produce a confident urgency. I don't have to tell you, but the the world is hard on faith. We see it every year. Line our high school graduates up, send them off, pray for them. Pretty much a lot of them have been through everything we have, same songs, same Bible stories, teaching. But a a lot of times, not just here, but across the nation, these high school graduates, all they got to do is spend just a few months on a college campus, and it's almost as their entire faith is destroyed, wiped out. They doubt everything because that's how hard the world is on faith. The world is so desperate to find a way to silence its own conscience that it seeks to do that by silencing the the mouth of the church. So it tries to get to these college kids and so the world mocks a believer's confidence in the precious story of Jesus. And then the world keeps this ongoing record of every time the church messes up and just waves it in front of people saying, that's what church does, that's what church is. And then the world manufactures endless questions to trap Christians in conversations about the great mysteries of life that nobody really can answer, but it ends up making a Christian, especially a college student, feel like they're, they're just dumb. And it's intimidating, and so they, their faith becomes weak over the world's mocking. Well, that's what was going on in the church that Peter shepherded. So he talked to them about it. Second Peter 3, above all, you must endure that in the last days, must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Just mocking. Because you see, the early church so believed that Jesus would come soon, that was a part of their witness. We want you to come to Christ because you're about to meet him. They did nothing wrong except make the assumption they knew it would be next week. It wasn't wasn't next month. It wasn't next year. And the longer it was, the more that the world, the pagan world, mocked their preaching and said, if you're God, I mean, it's an age-old argument, if you're God, anything, why didn't he come and just fix everything? That's what that verse is. If you're God, anything, why didn't he come fix everything? But he's not because he doesn't exist. I mean, it's just such a... Age-old argument. I talked to a Marine yesterday, and I've talked to many people in the services through the years, armed services, that how difficult it is to find fellowship with other believers. And he was telling me that the main objection that people have to anything that he might say about Christ is, if your God is so big and good, why is the world so messed up? I'm like, man, could you please come up with something original? People have been doing this for the beginning. 
And he says, I don't really know what to say. Because it's all they say to me. <clears throat> Why should we believe when all this is happening? So I told him something that somebody that was discipling me when I was 19 out in California. He said, Richard, it's okay not to know an answer once. It's not okay not to know it twice. So I told this Marine, you need to know the answer the next time somebody says that to you. I said, because Peter provides it. He tells you the answer. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I just wanted this Marine to understand that the answer is to his buddies. The reason why God is not judging all evil right now is he doesn't want to judge you and send you to hell. He's waiting for you to repent and to come to Christ. And there's still time. You can come today. That's why he's waiting on everybody. One more. One more. As long as God waits, there could be one more person, maybe one more person in this room today is the person that God's waiting on. But if we do persist in unbelief, there will be no more delay. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That is, if we are waiting for that to happen, all the way until then, we are witnessing and our lives are backing it up with purity. Then he goes on. As you look forward to the day of God and can hardly get this out of my mouth. Speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So you probably look at verse 12 the way I have all my life and say, say Richard, are you telling us it's possible to speed up the return of Christ? I didn't say that. Verse 12 did. I don't understand all of that, but you can look up speed up. It's Greek word means hasten, <laughs> speed up. And it does make sense that Jesus Christ is going to return when every tribe, tongue, and nation is reached. So why not go reach them and be done? What motivation better than that to live every day giving all to Christ than when it's done, he comes. I watched a documentary recently on, um, it's a great documentary on, well, it, it sort of started with the Battle of Little Bighorn. It's when Crazy Horse defeated General Custer in a two-day battle in 1876. Custer's last stand. Crazy Horse was a Lakota Sioux warrior. And um, there was a, a sculptor named Kordjak Kilkoski that wanted to honor Crazy Horse with a monument. 
So he went to the black holes of South Dakota. That's him. Korjak Kilkowski. So he went there when he was, look at this right. He went there in 1947. He was 34 years old. And he found this mountain. And he was going to carve crazy horse into that mountain. He stayed there every day for 34 years. He died at age 74, and his work was unfinished. His wife, Ruth, took over because he left three thick books of instructions of how the rest of it was to look, and all 10 of his children were involved in the project now it's down to the third generation of his family that's working on it. And this is what it looks like today. But it's just barely finished. In his book, this is what he wrote he wanted done to the mountain. Not only the head of Chief Crazy Horse, but I want the world to see his arms and his chest and I want to see him sitting on a horse on that stone. So they're still working on it. His entire family is committed to finishing that work because that's what their father wanted. And he left instructions how to do it. And so they are bound by the books that he left. I hope you're catching on. There's a finished work that Jesus said, keep telling everyone what I've instructed you to say. Keep preaching, keep singing, keep giving, keep going. Keep risking, keep suffering, keep dying for Christ. Get it done and then I'll come back. This raises the last question. Why are we so certain that he will return? I mean, we're banking everything on that, right? We walk around saying he's going to return. Why do, you, why do you say that? Jesus is coming back. Here's my answer. Jesus will come a second time because he came the first time. If there was a time when you might wonder if he's coming, it would be the first time. That was the hard time to come. If he came then, he will come now. You tell what I mean by that. <clears throat> to come the first time meant that he had to trade a throne in heaven for a manger filled with straw. In heaven, he created all things by the power of his word, but as a baby, he learned, had to learn how to talk. To come to earth the first time meant that he he would cut wood in the carpenter shop made from trees that he planted in heaven. To come to earth the first time meant that he would be doubted by his brothers, rejected by leaders, misunderstood by disciples, and betrayed by a friend. To come the first time meant that he would heal crippled legs, give sight to blind eyes, raise the dead, preach the truth, and show kindness to many. But when the miracles stopped flowing, the people stopped following. To come the first time meant that he would know hunger and thirst and weariness. To 
come the first time meant that he would know pain. As a little boy, he would fall down on the rocky streets of Nazareth and skin his knee, and he would bleed. As a teenager, he would feel a splinter go deep into his hand at the carpenter's shop. He would bleed. As a grown man, he would experience the injustice of a mock trial and the humiliation of being beaten by Roman guards. He would bleed. In his final six hours on earth, he would be nailed to a cross where he would sacrifice his body for the sins of the world. He would bleed. When the guilt of the world was poured onto his innocent body, the sight was so hideous that God turned away. Blood drained from his body, so now he would die. He was no longer bleeding. He was dead. And then later he would rise. All of these things would be required of him if he came the first time. And he said yes to them all, so you say, do I think he'll come again? He told us in John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am to see my, see my glory. Sister Richard, do you think he really will come the second time? Of course he will, because he's already done the hard thing. If he came the first time, then there truly will be joy to the world because I know he's coming a second time. If he's going to do the hard thing, he's committed to the next thing. So we open the whole sermon with a, a hymn by Isaac Watts that we're beginning to know now is not necessarily a Christmas hymn, but it remains our favorite Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. But Isaac Watts' second favorite hymn I want to close with. Not joy to the world, but words you grew up in church loving. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast except in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Does the return of Christ Make us lethargic, lazy, ineffective? No, it makes us give Him everything. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.